0: Hi, I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. Our guest today is Yuval Levin. He is the Director of Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies at the American Enterprise Institute and the current editor of National Affairs, as well as a senior editor of the New Atlantis. Dr. Levin has published essays and articles in numerous publications, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. Washington Post, and commentary. He is the author of several books on political theory and public policy, most recently, A Time to Build, From Family and Community to Congress and the Campus, How Recommitting to Our Institutions Can Revive the American Dream. He holds an MA and PhD from the Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago. Yuval, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks very much for having me.
0: I think over the past year and a half the the concept of science and medicine has been referenced and discussed more than in any other period of my lifetime. We heard and regularly hear from people that we should listen to the science and scientists or science says when it comes to COVID-19 policy and medical treatment as if scientists are not only the arbiters of objective truth and technological progress but the unbiased demigods here to tell us what the right policies are regarding lockdowns, masks, and vaccines. But we also hear from critics of this view, stating that science and scientists can provide us with facts and the quantitative probabilities of one outcome or another, but they're morally neutral. We and our politicians must weigh the risks and benefits of lockdowns and other COVID-mitigating measures— and then craft moral public policy taking into account the scientific consensus or debate. Your 2008 book, Imagining the Future, which so presciently preempts our current pandemic moment, offers another path. You write, we must judge modern science not only by its material products, but also, and more so, by its intentions and its influence upon the way humanity has come to think in both these ways, science is far from morally neutral. What did you mean by this when you wrote it? And how might we think about it in the context of our vociferous international debate about COVID-19 policies?
1: Well, thank you. I think that that really puts the question of the moment in a wonderful way. I, I, I would say that the one moment in my lifetime that almost competes with this one for putting science front and center was the moment in which that book was written when some debates about bioethics were very unusually prominent in American political life for a brief time, to a degree that's almost unimaginable to us now, uh, and really was bizarre even in its own time, but forced us to think about the nature of the relationship between science and politics in an unusually explicit way, debates over stem cell research, cloning related things. And I would say that one thing that struck me in that time was this notion that science just provides neutral facts. And so it, it, we, should, we should look to it for um, a sense of reality and then think about our politics uh, and what that might have to do with it, which, as you say, is oddly offered up sometimes as a defense of the role of science in politics and sometimes as a criticism of the role of science in politics. And I think in both respects, it's not quite right. The The modern scientific enterprise, and especially the biomedical scientific enterprise, which is at the center of our thinking about science in both this moment and that one, is very far from, from morally neutral. It begins with a moral purpose um, to, to relieve suffering and heal the sick, which is a very high moral purpose. It's not the only high moral purpose, but it's a very important one. Um, And not only that, but science is also a crucial and fundamental now uh, human endeavor in the modern era. It occupies some of the best and brightest minds in every corner of the world. Um, It calls upon enormous resources, public and private, in, in every modern society. And it does frame the ways we think about who we are and what we do. And I think we have to take it very seriously as a moral enterprise for good and bad. It is, on its face and first and foremost, very much a moral enterprise for the good, because to heal the sick and relieve suffering is a moral good. But it can also deform the ways we think about other things. It tells us that the relief of suffering and the advancement of health is not only a good, but the highest good. And that sometimes is not quite right and forces us to think about how we prioritize. Uh, moral goods in a modern society, and we do often have a lot of trouble prioritizing health and science alongside other things. I think that a debate that says, on the one hand, um, this is the highest ideal and must be pursued, on the other hand, this is just morally neutral um, and only provides us with background facts, misses the core challenge and also the core promise of modern science and biomedicine for us. And in both this pandemic moment and that kind of bioethics moment, the inadequacy of that way of thinking has really come to the fore.
0: Absolutely, and it's interesting because as you're um, answering that question, I kind of think about um, the hospital sort of microcosm of 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 what you're talking about, and there we often encounter patients at the end of life. Of course, are facing deadly disease, and when that happens, there is really a deep frustration, a kind of mourning by both the patient and the physician um, for the patient who is struggling to come to terms with the end. And for physicians, our ostensible purpose seems to evaporate because our our powers don't work here uh, anymore. um, And we feel kind of useless despite our desire to help. So families bring their relatives understandably for third and fourth opinions. Um, Sometimes chemotherapy is offered in the most dire of circumstances, despite a higher likelihood of harming than actually helping. Uh, and, you know, I've encountered patients who will beg and plead for therapies despite the kind of known toxicities um, and the proven kind of lack of benefit for them. So I, I understand these reactions. They make total sense to me. And I, as I look at our national conversations These uncomfortable and difficult hospital conversations seem to be amplified and percolate into our policy decisions, whether it's about kind of like absolute and aggressive COVID-19 mitigation measures, despite widespread vaccination. I don't know if that's a perfect example, Um, but even like historically more distant examples. So in 1968, there was a draft from a Harvard Medical School Committee on the definition of brain death. And they said brain death needed to be redefined because of the, quote, secondary issues, that there is a great need for tissues and organs to restore those who are salvageable, implying that we need to redefine death in order to harvest more organs for people who have lives worth living. So I guess overall, there seems to be a kind of panic here, a panic about death in our society. Uh, I'm not saying that we should not pursue health or try to stave off sickness and illness, But as you put it in Imagining the Future, quote, we have persuaded ourselves that fighting pain and suffering is itself the highest calling of the human race, or at the very least, a foremost purpose of of society. When did this panic set in, and what do we miss when we focus on avoiding death as the highest calling of the human race?
1: So I I think what you're getting at very powerfully there is the difficulty we have in prioritizing health alongside other human priorities. It's very, very difficult to say, this is just one thing that matters a lot, and there are also others. Um, you can see that challenge of prioritization in all kinds of ways when we think about I mean, you can look at the last two years of, of pandemic response and see it everywhere. You can look at the last 50 years of the federal budget, for example, and if you break down the federal budget into health spending and non-health spending, what you see are two completely different patterns, where non-health spending has been pretty much steady and and level relative to the size of our economy. And health spending has been climbing at an extraordinary rate for half a century. And w- what you see in a picture like that is the challenge of prioritization, the difficulty of saying some, but up to a point, the difficulty of saying this is important, but so are other things. I, I do think that that is a function uh, at one level of the of the assumption, the often unstated implied assumption that health is the highest good. That is an assumption that's been stated explicitly sometimes, and it's especially easy to find it in the thinking of the, of the fathers of modern scientific thought. Um, not necessarily the great scientific geniuses who advanced medicine through discovery and experimentation, but the philosophical geniuses who made the case for science Francis Bacon, Rene Descartes, early on. Descartes, in fact, explicitly says that health is the highest good, uh, the foundation of all other goods in this life, he says, in, in the Discourse on Method. And th- that's, that's an extraordinarily extreme statement. It's a statement that, is, that was rooted for him and for others like him in a sense of frustration with the, the kind of philosophy that he was taught in the European universities in his day, which was not very practical. And he thought, we, we can put these methods to use. We can actually improve the human condition, and especially we can help people who are sick and suffering. And he was right. That's been done, and in ways that have improved the human condition dramatically. But in the process, we've allowed ourselves to think of the human condition as a crisis. Uh, that is the fact of mortality, which is a fact. The mortality rate for the human race is 100% everyone faces death. and if we're going to see that as, as an emergency as a crisis, then we will always live in an emergency and in a crisis and that means you know one of the things you do in an emergency is you put aside the normal rules that usually apply that usually constrain professional behavior that usually constrain um, the the ethics of prioritization and you say yes, but this is an emergency. We've done that in the last two years over the pandemic with good reason, I think. And there have been situations where we've said, normally we wouldn't be doing this, but this is a crisis and it really was a crisis. And we've been able to address it because we took certain steps that we normally wouldn't. But if you see mortality itself as a crisis, then we're always in crisis. And then you say things like, we don't need to regard the dignity of the individual because we need organs, because there are people dying. And so this is not a time to be thinking abstractly in these highfalutin philosophical terms about human dignity. We're offering people money for organs, and they're making a choice, and it's their own choice, and people need kidneys. Um, th- that's not crazy, but I think that it is ultimately a moral failure to, to treat the, the normal course of the human condition as a crisis is to suspend ethical boundaries on human behavior when it comes to medicine. And that is an extremely dangerous thing to do. I think you can find that attitude all the way back to the beginnings of modern science, but that it has become more prevalent in the modern era. Uh, For one thing, as medicine has become more effective, I mean, you actually can transplant organs now, which is a kind of miraculous thing. And to say, well, people are dying who could survive, who could be living, if only more people donated organs, you know, again, that's not actually that unreasonable. We should think about ways of making that possible but that's not an argument for suspending our core our core uh, moral boundaries on behavior that is ethics it's not an argument for suspending ethics and we have to see that other things matter too that that human dignity and equality matter that the the capacity of our society to enable human flourishing matters and that forces us to think about moral philosophy and political philosophy in very f- fundamental terms in ways that have to inform our political judgments and that have to inform our civic life. That's complicated and uh, and challenging, but it's a challenge we've got to take up because to say that our capacity to save lives means that we should therefore disregard the core ethics of human dignity is surely a mistake. And put that way, almost no one would think so, but it's what we do a lot of the time now.
0: And why is it, I mean, I I certainly understand that there's this underlying philosophy of you know avoid death at all costs but presumably you know these are um, many brilliant people who are aiming at this goal um, who tend to ignore these ethical objections or maybe aren't exposed to them I- I'm not sure what what explanation to give but why is it that these other concerns are being pushed to the side yeah. c- consciously or subconsciously
1: you know, I think some of it is fairly easy to understand. Which is, you know, my kid is sick. Uh, you know, are you kidding me with these rules? What wh- what are we saving here? Um, that's a completely understandable view. Um, you know, it's one thing to talk in the abstract about balancing the interests of uh, of, of a sick individual and uh, and the larger society. It's another thing when your mother's in the hospital and you're going to do whatever it takes. Now, I think that's why there have to be rules. That's why there have to be rules that are not made on the fly, but that actually bind the practice of these uh, medical therapies and interventions so that we're not putting people whose children are sick in the position of making a decision for society about what its priorities ought to be. We make that decision when we're able to have a broader perspective on what matters but, you know, I also think that it's become more difficult for our society to think about prioritizing medicine and health, because health is one of the few things we do agree about. You know, everybody does want more people to be healthy. Everybody does want their own family to be healthy. There's not a lot else that you can say that there's consensus about in American life at this point. And I I think as the as the core moral premises that are derived from our jewish and christian foundations have come to have somewhat less of a hold on our public life we've looked for for anywhere we can have some consensus about anything and healthcare and medicine really is one of the few places and so it has become a place where one thing we can agree on is that we ought to do everything we possibly can to help people who are in pain or to help people who are facing death. It it just seems to me that that is is an incredible distortion um, of the, the priorities that a society must have if it's going to protect its most important ideals. And we've got to think hard about where else there is some consensus about human equality, for example about the need to respect people who are in positions uh, in inferior power positions or who face economic pressures. We have to think about these things even when health is on the table, but it's not easy to do.
0: Just even looking back, I mean, I came of age politically in uh, like 2001. I mean, 9-11 was sort of the defining moment for me. I was a freshman in high school. And I remember as I sort of dug deep into politics during that time, and, and you know the subsequent years the the bioethics council uh, president Bush's bioethics council and there seemed to be a, a, not just controversy but press surrounding that um that council and it it was it sure
1: felt that way to me yeah,
0: yeah right <laughs> it was uh it was a big deal and I think since then that, concept or the idea of bioethics as a pressing public policy matter has really dissipated unless I'm missing something here um and do you think that kind of that i don't know um that bottoming out has happened for for the same reason kind of we, we've been talking about that we just want to find something we agree on and and so, well, let's not go near bioethics because it's a little too controversial.
1: You know, I think that the, 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 that moment was very unusual. There was not much to compare it to before it or since. Um, it was a moment where some debates that are about very basic and profound questions about the relationship between science and democracy were on the table in an unusual way for a, a peculiar set of reasons. One reason was that these kinds of bioethical debates intersected with the abortion debate in a way that was that was advantageous for the left in particular. You know, the abortion debate is a kind of uh, it, it, the abortion debate is a challenging debate for everybody involved, and the strongest argument of the pro-life side is always that there's a life here, there's a human being here um, who has to be considered as a human being. The, the debates about embryo research take that argument to its to its most extreme possible position which says that in the days after conception we already have a human person there and that's a mode of the abortion debate that's much easier for the left to engage in than it is to argue about you know an unborn child in the third trimester and so the left pressed in on that argument in a very very intense way and said essentially This is crazy. What we're talking about here is a clump of cells. The right engaged in response, I think, frankly, in very impressive ways. There was a president who was willing to do that and who made that a prominent issue for himself. And so we had a a version of a, a, a bioethics argument that took place in an exceptionally prominent way that was really basically about how to think about human life in. Uh, in its earliest phases, in the moments where the argument is almost philosophical and where its premises are most uh, evident and visible. And one side of our politics thought there was an enormous political advantage in making that a very prominent debate. And so if you look, for example, at the 2004 Democratic Convention, which nominated John Kerry to be the presidential candidate... Th- there was so much talk about stem cell research um, in, the, in, a pol- in a national political convention. I mean, looking back on it, it is really bizarre, but I think it was a way of trying to press an advantage from one side that had the peculiar uh, consequence of making these bioethics debates exceptionally prominent. Ultimately, I-, I think the Bush administration held out tremendously well and impressively under that enormous pressure. And I can tell you, I mean, I, I, I worked for the Bioethics Commission. I was the chief of staff of the commission and then worked for President Bush on these issues at the White House. And there was enormous pressure on him to just say, fine, look, we're talking about an embryo and, and you know, that's 14 days old. L- let's have this debate in another way. And I, I think that his insistence that, no, this is what we mean. We actually mean that every human life has basic dignity and, and needs to be protected that made that debate somewhat painful for Republicans uh, politically, but I think it ultimately made it a very useful argument for hashing out some fundamentals of bioethics in the public arena. I don't think it's that strange that we don't put bioethics front and center that way all the time. You know, these are complicated and oftentimes, as a practical matter, fairly marginal issues. I think they matter a lot for in that they compel us to put our principles on the table and to really say what matters to us and that ultimately that does reflect on the broader practice of medicine in ways that really matter a lot but you know it it, it makes sense that most of the time these aren't debates that are had in a front and center sort of way but i do think and you suggested this earlier that w- w- when the w- when the pandemic began some of the tools that were developed in that period proved to be useful. The conceptual tools, the ideas, the ways of thinking about, uh, about science. And in some ways, especially the peculiar point we were just talking about, which is that we cannot treat everyday life as a crisis because people die. But there are times when there are crises that we must treat as a crisis because people die. Um, prudence means you have to be in the middle here and not at either end and not to say, don't worry about a a global pandemic because you're talking about, you know, 80 year olds who were going to die in the next five years anyway. Um, that's an unreasonable way to respond to what we dealt with. And also saying, this is the only thing that matters. We have to preserve life at all costs also is an unreasonable way to do this. Finding that middle ground is an enormous challenge. And I think those earlier bioethics debates helped us do that. But it has to be said that the prominence of, of those issues in, in 2001 through 2006 or so um, was a very unusual thing. And it's probably good that it's pretty unusual.
0: Makes sense. And I guess that sort of brings me to the next question. Because anyone who's even peripherally following the news sees that COVID-19 has become very much a uh, partisan wedge issue and probably for a plethora of reasons. But even if we just look at, at vaccines, which were initially treated very skeptically by the left as Trump was developing them, and then there was this very rapid turnaround, I don't even remember when it happened, where suddenly the right was skeptical of vaccines and the left embraced them politics by its nature, I know can be pretty cynical. Is this all just kind of cynical or is there something inherent about the worldview or political philosophy of the right and the left that led to this cutthroat opposition about pandemic policy and, and science in general?
1: I, I think it's a mix of those things. I would say that there, this is a very exceptionally polarized time in American life so that if the leader of the of the right says, uh it's day the left is going to say it's night and vice versa and we just we see this over and over um and and it really does happen now and then that there is this kind of incredible reversal just a real reversal because uh one party says one party says dark and one party says light um that's some of what has happened here uh around covid i do think that there is a way in which the American right today understands itself to be the outside party, the party that is excluded from all the major mainstream institutions. And therefore, it has very little trust in these institutions. And so this crisis did uh, arrive for the right in a moment of exceptionally high mistrust in elites, um, a time when even a Republican president so you know the 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 ultimate insider in American politics, the President of the United States, was a person who saw himself as an outsider and wanted to present himself as an outsider and essentially attacked expertise and uh and the legitimacy of government decision making from the white house um, and that created a set of circumstances that really prepared the right to be anti-authority in a moment when there was some need for solidarity around an enormous national challenge. So I, I, I do think that the, 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 the evolution of the two parties over the last 20 years and more, where they've basically switched sides from the left thinking of itself as the outsider and the right thinking it, it properly should own the institutions, to the right now very much seeing itself as the outsider, and the left thinking of itself as owning the institutions. Uh, the left, therefore, is much more commonly the defender of scientific authority, the defender of elite consensus. This might seem natural to younger people in America, but it's actually very unusual. Uh, I'll give you an example from outside of science and medicine. You know, the, the, the kind of... So everybody has conspiracies in politics. The kind of election conspiracy that an, an inside party would have says, the Russians tried to steal our elections. That's something the right would have said for most of the second half of the twentieth century. It's now very natural for the left to say that. The conspiracy that an outside party would have says the, the elites that run the government and the elites that run the corporations are are conspiring against the people to keep us down. That's what the left would have said for most of my lifetime. It's now very much what the right says. I think we're just in a moment when the right is the outside party, and so is the party that is much more likely. To be hostile to claims to authority, and of course that melds nicely with a, a, a libertarian strand that's always part of the American right. And I do think there are ways that the right was just ready to be the party that says, "Hell no, none of this is real. Um, you know, it's just the flu." And then we, I don't want to do this, and then get the mask off me, and then I'm not going to get a vaccine. Now there were real abuses of power um, and and real abuses of authority throughout the course of the pandemic. I think the public health elite in America has come off very poorly from this period. And a lot of that skepticism has been justified. But there also is a need for some trust in authority in a moment like this. I think the left was inclined to show too much trust of that sort, and the right was inclined to show too little. And that exacerbated the kind of polarization that was already there.
0: I definitely want to talk to you about trust in authority and institutions. But first, can this gap between right and left be bridged? I know it's not going to, you know, we're not going to all uh, agree on everything, of course. But can that gap be bridged to some extent such that we're having a healthy national debate about these issues? Um, and how can we sort of do that?
1: yeah I, I I mean I think there are ways, but that they're going to be very challenging for our political culture in this moment. This really is a time when it's hard to have anything like a traditional public policy debate uh, on any issue i mean if you if you think about it, we have a political culture problem that means that our politics for the most part is not really about traditional public policy debates um, th- There are ways that crises can break those kinds of fevers and can force us to be more realistic and practical and y- you could imagine the pandemic having done that but it did not do that um broadly speaking that's not the effect that it had now i, I think that at the levels of our politics where decisions really have to get made some of that did happen so y- you can find a lot of governors for example of both parties who are just in a situation where you know the the madness is the madness, but I got to decide here what what is going to happen with our hospitals, with our schools. Uh, what are the rules going to be for locking down or opening up? And a lot of that was done in a pretty constructive way. I mean, I think you can find governors and uh, and state officials of both parties who did a pretty good job in the course of this period. Our national politics has been subject to such intense cultural pressures that it it's much harder to find at the national level that kind of good leadership. There was some. There were moments when it was done well. The development of the vaccines is an example of real success in which the federal government had a major role. Um I do think there have been other moments when uh both in the Trump years and in and in the Biden years when when there has been some real leadership. But I don't think we've had Uh, a constructive, responsible national debate about this. Maybe that's too much to ask. I don't think it needs to be too much to ask, especially in an emergency. But our political culture is in a place where, again, because of the levels of mistrust, but also sheer polarization. I mean, the two parties live in their own bubbles to such a degree that they have very great trouble engaging with each other. When we say polarization, it can sound like what I'm describing is is a war between two parties, parties that are just at each other's throats all the time. That's actually not what we're experiencing. What we see are two parties that have each withdrawn into its own uh, closed room to talk about the other. And when you do that, it's very hard to have a real debate,
0: yeah. as we mentioned, I mean, this is sort of about um public trust in the institution of science and medicine. In relation to COVID stuff. And in your book, A A Time to Build, you discuss the importance of institutions and our trust in them. You're right. What we are missing, although we too rarely put it this way, is not simply connectedness, but a structure of social life, a way to give shape, place, and purpose to the things we do together. If American life is a big open space, it is not a space filled with individuals. It is a space filled with these structures of social life. It is a space filled with institutions. To take us away, I guess, just for a moment from science and medicine, why are institutions so important to our lives? How do they give shape to our lives?
1: When we we think about the kinds of problems that we have now, um, we're inclined to describe them in very individualistic terms. And so we see them as maybe various kinds of radicalization, or we see them as isolation, alienation, loneliness. And I think that's true. That's right. But what that's actually describing is a an, an absence of modes of connection and affiliation and common action and the the forms of those sorts of common actions of being able to work together are what we call institutions. Institution is a very broad kind of capacious term. There are a lot of different academic definitions of it. But I think if we describe institutions as basically the, the, the forms of our common life, the shapes and structures of what we do together, we can get at some of what's missing now. Um, they're not just a, an institution is not just a bunch of people. It's a bunch of people who are organized around a common goal. And that goal gives each of them some relation to others, a particular role. A family is an institution and a parent has a distinct role that's different from a grandparent or a child or an aunt or an uncle. And that the relations they have to each other also define how they understand themselves. Uh, a a hospital, a school, uh, a political party, are similarly institutions that give different individuals roles in relation to one another, but ultimately in relation to a purpose they have in common. And a lot of what's missing in American life is a sense of relation and purpose. And that means that what's weak now are our institutions. We as Americans in particular are inclined to treat institutions as invisible. We see right through them. Um, we don't want to think that we need mediation to enable us to be effective in society or to thrive or to be happy. W- you know, Our culture is rooted in a kind of anti-institutional Protestantism that has a lot going for it and a lot that's very good about it. But in a moment like this, it makes it very hard to see what's wrong. And I think a lot of what's wrong now is the weakening of our institutions and of their capacity to form us as individuals in ways that make us trustworthy to one another, and so this connects very much to the question of trust we've been talking about because I think what institutions ultimately do think of a profession as an institution or of a, a of a university of a of a school of a corporation. A lot of what they do is they provide boundaries around what the individuals within them can do. they give a shape to what they do so journalism as an institution imposes a set of rules over the people within it that shapes their work. And to outsiders, those rules make those people trustworthy. The same thing is true in medicine. There are are certain things that a doctor is not going to do because he's a doctor. And you know that, and you trust that person for that reason. There are things a scientist would not say, would not claim, because he's a scientist. Now, we don't always live up to those boundaries. But when we don't, we're we're, we're failures as doctors or scientists or whatever we may be. The institution imposes a standard that makes trust possible. And the weakening of institutions increasingly makes trust impossible.
0: To give the example of science and medicine, in in the book, you point out that in in the early 1970s, 80% of Americans told Gallup they had a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in doctors and hospitals. And in 2018, the figure was 36%. And this, in some ways, at least according to recent Pew polls, skews along partisan lines, as we discussed earlier. So among Democrats now, 53% have a great deal of confidence in medical scientists to act in the public interest, while 37% responded in this way in January 2019, and then among Republicans, only 31% express a great deal of confidence in medical scientists. That number was 32% in 2019. Why um, do you see this erosion of trust happening in medicine, and medical science? What are its ideologies?
1: You know, a, a lot of the erosion and trust in our institutions, and I think when we think about one such institution, we should see that it's part of a larger trend people do trust doctors a lot less than they used to. They also trust just about everybody else a lot less than they used to. And I think an important part of that um, has to do with the way in which these institutions have transformed themselves into platforms for political activism. And I don't mean that in the simplest way. I mean, there are a lot of reasons to lose trust in, in authority. You know, institutions sometimes are just incompetent, They fail in a big way, and that causes us to lose trust. That certainly has happened some in our time, as it always does. There's also corruption, where people just put their own personal interest above their institutional obligations, and so they can't be trusted. That happens a lot now, too, and it always happens. But if we ask ourselves, what happens a lot now that hasn't always happened? That is, why is institutional trust collapsing now? I think that has a lot to do with the way in which a lot of our institutions have been transformed from the kind of mold of behavior and character that I described into a platform for performance into a place to stand and show that you 're on the right team that 's happened across the range of our institutions now a lot of i mean think about members of Congress basically think of Congress now as a stage as a place to stand in front of cameras and be seen um, it 's happened in journalism where you know if you check on in on Twitter right now you 'd find people who are supposed to do their work under the auspices of professional boundaries, but who instead are just building their own personal brands. They're just they're just using their profession as a stage, using the New York Times as a platform for themselves. Um, you see this happening a lot in corporate America, where companies that have a particular purpose to serve, a particular service to provide, good to produce, instead want to show that they're on the right side of some big cultural uh, force. And it certainly happens also in the professions, in medicine and law, where people who ought to stand apart from some of our cultural and political debates and say, look, what I know is gastroenterology, whatever. What, what, I, what I know is cancer medicine. So I don't want to talk to you about Donald Trump. I want to talk to you about what we need to do here. That is a very powerful thing. Um, you know, that's a way to really say, you can trust me. I'm not taking a side against you. I have a job to do. And in a lot of the professions, and it's certainly true in medicine too, we've seen a decline in the ability and the willingness to say that. And instead, the medical profession wants to say, we're on the side of social justice or we're on the side of this and that. And sometimes that's the right side to be on. I'm not saying otherwise. But when you say that, you're telling people that this isn't a professional to trust. This is a member of one team or another and therefore what they say has to be understood that way. So that when public health professionals in the middle of a global pandemic say that it's dangerous to have uh, you know, a, a large funeral for your aunt who died, but if you want to have a protest against racial injustice by the police, that's a different story. Those people are making themselves impossible to trust. And it's, in, it's just extremely important that professionals try to avoid crossing that kind of boundary and losing the sense of what they are as professionals, um, because that makes trust very difficult. And the life of a free society is impossible without trust. We cannot live in a complicated modern society if we can't say, you know, the guy who is running that part of our society knows how to run that part of our society. The electric company knows how to keep the power flowing. Uh, and, and the doctors know how to think about disease. If instead we say, the guy who's running that hospital is from the other party, and he's against me on this, then it, it's, it simply becomes impossible to have the kind of underlying level of trust that it, our society requires. And so I think part of what's happened is the fault of the professionals themselves who have allowed themselves to be dragged into cultural fights when they should do everything they possibly can to avoid them. And of course, part of it is also the fault of the larger political culture that wants to treat everything as an arena in this, this one overarching battle. And so that all of American life is a yes or no question, is one yes or no question. Um, that's obviously not a healthy way to live.
0: I've noticed this in, in my own practice or on Twitter, and it makes me very concerned for the, for the profession itself. I mean, I, I do not speak to my patients about politics. Even when they bring it up, I sort of you know, try and shift the conversation because they're there for healing. They're ill, and, and politics can so easily come between doctor and patient. So like Democrat or Republican should be irrelevant seeing physicians going to protests in their white coats as if the profession of medicine ha- is taking a stand here on this particular issue. I just worry that you know, doing this, saying that because they're physicians, they're voting for such and such a candidate or supporting such and such a tax policy, it, it polarizes the institution of medicine, as you said. And rather than making it welcoming to people of all opinions, all habits, all backgrounds. When did you first... know? I mean, I have noticed this only kind of very recently, but maybe it's because I was so enmeshed in residency and training that I just didn't have the time to see it. Um, but when did you first notice that this was going on?
1: You know, I think it, in some ways and in some Parts of American life—it actually is a fairly recent phenomenon. Um, At the very least, you would say it's a twenty-first century problem, Um, and I think that it has to do with a changing sense of what the relevant culture is and a changing sense of what trust actually involves. Social media has something significant to do with it. I wouldn't attribute it simply to social media, but the sense that Twitter is is real is reality. Is very powerful for some people, and so you're left with the sense that you just have to show that you're not for this bad thing. You're against it, and you know doctors are against it, and maybe it's really a bad thing. But you have to think about the limits of the claims you can make wearing that white coat, as you say, Um, and you know the sense that we all have an obligation to uh, to like that statement or put a thumbs up over that thing. Um is very, very powerful. there's a the social media enables a kind of peer pressure that is unlike anything we've seen before. And at the very least we're not used to it. We don't we're not in a place yet when we can say, well, that's Twitter. I, I'm not on Twitter right now. I'm treating patients. Um, and you know, I do think that it's a challenge because it's a new environment and it can be very powerful, um, it is somewhat difficult. Obviously, it also has to do with the underlying fact of our political polarization, which has grown worse uh, or more intense in, in the last, uh, say, three decades or so. Polarization is not an unfamiliar force in American life, but we did go through a period of very, very weak polarization. Um, the, the middle of the 20th century was really an unusual time in America, um, and there was a very strong uh m- middle ground mainstream um in our culture and in our politics and you know party politics became almost regional um there were very conservative democrats and very liberal republicans just as there were very conservative republicans and very liberal democrats and the coalitions just looked different saying what party you were in didn't tell you all that much about what you who you were and what you were today saying what party you're in tells people a lot about you. And uh, people are much more sensitive about it. I always think to an incident in the late 90s that didn't seem very important then, but Michael Jordan, the great basketball player, um, turned out to have given a, a modest campaign donation to a Democratic candidate in North Carolina, where he was from. And it was a surprise to people because he'd never had anything to do with politics. And the Democrats were excited. Maybe Michael Jordan is a Democrat and he can help us and he was pressed on why he doesn't get more involved in important political issues, um, and why you know he just makes Nike commercials and doesn't in, in, and doesn't do political uh, activism. And Jordan's answer got him in a lot of trouble. What he said was, "Republicans buy sneakers too." Um, in other words, he doesn't want to offend people because his job is to play a game and sell shoes. Um, I, I think that there was actually some extraordinarily important wisdom in that answer. Um, it basically said, I'm not a politician. As a citizen, I, I give money to somebody I think would be good for my state, but I'm not going to be, I'm not going to pretend that what I do is politics and use my celebrity for that. And he put it in kind of crass terms, like we got to sell shoes. But, you know, there are a lot of corporations now that would benefit from something like that attitude. That would say, uh, you know people with different views might all like our 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 chicken nuggets, so why do we have to get involved in politics? <laughs> there are also less crass forms of that that say you know Republicans and Democrats both get diabetes uh, I've got to treat them both, and I cannot behave in a way that is off-putting to half of my potential patient population because it makes me feel good and makes me feel like i've uh, I've checked a box for my Social circle. That's actually a very important element of professionalism. And I think it has been lost in our time because of the pressure of our political culture.
0: Hmm. Is there a way forward here, a way to undo some of what's been done and and prevent further erosion of trust or gain back that that trust, which is so important, I think, to to science and medicine?
1: I think it is important to say forward and not back. Um, I don't think there's quite a way to go back to the the political culture of the middle of the 20th century, which is what a lot of our politics wants to do. In a, in a weird way, we treat that time as a norm, and it was actually very unusual. Um, but the question is, how can we build some trust in this moment? I think that would require understanding the sources of our loss of trust. And that's why it's important to think about institutions, to think about political culture, to think about social media, and to ask ourselves, given the need for trust in authority, for trust in professionals, for trust in one another, how do we need to be behaving a little different? I think it would mean uh, staying off Twitter, if you're a professional in, in some field that might be affected by what you have to say as an individual. I mean, look, I think everybody should stay off Twitter. I think Twitter should be nuked from space. It's a terrible scourge on our society. But at the very least, we as individuals need to think about how to behave in ways that might be less destructive online and uh, and then also, of course, offline. And think about how do I channel institutional responsibility in ways that might make me more trustworthy? Just ask a simple question. Given the role I've got here as a doctor in this hospital, as a teacher in this school, as a member of Congress, uh, as, as, as somebody's neighbor, as somebody's friend, given that role, how should I behave in this moment that I'm facing, in this decision that I confront? That's a small question, but if you think about it, It's a question that the people who most drive us crazy now in American life are just obviously failing to ask. And so we find ourselves looking at things they do and thinking, how could she think that that's appropriate? How could he think that that's not going to ruin what he's trying to build? And it's very easy to miss how important that is. But I think that if we ask ourselves, given the role I have here, how should I make this choice? We could avoid a lot of obvious mistakes, and then we have to demand the same thing from from leaders in our society, from people who run the various institutions or who occupy them, uh, the various institutions that we're part of or we care about. And you know, that's how you build norms. That's how you build expectations. I don't think there's a there's a magic formula or some massive transformation that could happen, but recognizing the problem and therefore acting in small ways where we are to try to avoid it and avert it would really make a difference.
0: Yeah, and one one last I guess question point if I may. A friend of mine refers to communication as blood flow, and I I wonder, you know, if also part of this is that we are not we are not interacting person to person or people to people. We're shielded by social media or by email or text or whatever it is. And Perhaps that is, is some, some way forward to more interaction. And maybe COVID-19 has accelerated this whole division because of that.
1: I think that's very true. And I, and I would say that it is more than communication. So if, if we think about what, what it is we do when we're together with other people, part of that is communication, is just exchanging information. Part of that is something more like communion, just being together, experiencing one another. And one thing that the pandemic has really shown is that it's possible to separate communication from communion. Mm. We can exchange information very easily on the internet and in other ways, but we can't actually commune with one another that way. And when we don't do that, we abstract other human beings. We come to treat them as the sum of their expressed opinions rather than understanding them as, as complicated creatures like ourselves. And I think it is enormously important to find ways to spend more time together with other people, um, particularly with people with whom you share some important goal in your life, people who, um, w- with whom you are part of an institution. Uh, it's not really possible to replace that kind of human interaction with electronic communication. There's a lot that's very valuable about being able to communicate uh, y- 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 uh to, to communicate digitally and electronically. It makes things a lot easier and in a lot of important ways. I don't want to dismiss it. But we should not forget that in order to really live together as neighbors, as fellow citizens, we have to actually know each other a little bit. And it makes it much harder to dismiss or demean somebody when you know them a little bit, when you recognize them as part of, as part of a family, as part of a community, as... Having their own story and their own complicated sense of who they are and why, and that's not easy to achieve without time spent together. And so I think there's no question: the internet, in a lot of ways, has made us all more effective loners. You know, we we can do whatever we can do what we want and need in ways that don't require a lot of eye contact, don't require a lot of interpersonal risk. And we've got to find ways to make more eye contact and take more interpersonal risk because without that. It's very hard to sustain a a, a diverse and complex society.
0: On that note, Ival, thanks so much for taking the time today.
1: Thank you very much.
0: This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn about our programs, events, podcasts, and more.